0: We believe, we acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Thank you, our God and Father, for these wonderful truths. We thank you that through Jesus our sins are forgiven and we are brought into a relationship of love with you again. We thank you for Jesus, Lord, and we thank you for your word And as we gather together today in different circumstances than normal, unable to do lots of the things we normally would, uh, we pray, our Heavenly Father, for your grace now as we hear your word, that you might put aside the distractions of this week, uh, put aside any of the things that might take our minds off uh, your wonderful truth and your grace. And please, our Father, by your Spirit, your powerful Spirit, work within us, to soften our hearts as we hear your word read and proclaimed. our God, we pray that you will do a mighty work within each of us here this morning, uh, and we pray that for your glory in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Matthew nineteen eighteen
1: to 34. While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. Just then, a woman who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, If only I touch his cloak, he will, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house, and saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes. He said, go away. This girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand. She got up. News of this spread through all that region. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind man came to him And he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. While they were going out, a man who was demon possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. When the demon was driven out, the man who'd been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisee said, is it by the prince of demons that he drives out demons?
0: Uh, Well, friends, as I said, if you have an outline, you'll find a bit of a sermon outline in there. Uh, And we are looking at this great little passage. Uh, uh, But before we get to the text, you probably heard the saying, right, that power corrupts. But absolute power corrupts absolutely. <laughs> yeah, you've heard the saying, power corrupts. Uh, history is littered, isn't it, with examples of power corrupting people, uh, uh, the corrupting influence of power. Uh, one of the most extreme, uh, you'll find—you see a picture of this guy up on the screen. One of the most extreme examples that I uh, sort of came across uh, was a guy who lived around about the time of Jesus, uh, he, just, he came to power just five years after Jesus' death. He was a new Roman emperor, a guy called Caligula. Anyone heard, heard of Caligula? Um, he believed he was divine and he had absolute power and authority. And there are these kind of famous stories of uh, his crazy and ruthless actions, that the the, kind, the power just went to his head. So so uh, some of them are crazy. Sources tell of his favourite horse named Inquitatus. He loved his horse so much that he attempted to instate it as one of his priests and consuls. So here's a picture of um, Caligula and his horse. Uh, but there's more sinister stories about this guy. Uh, once at the Circus Maximus, they ran out of criminals to take part down below. Uh, and, but the next event, because they'd all died, right? So, but the next event was the Lions, and it was Caligula's favourite event. So he just ordered his guards to drag the first few rows of spectators uh, into the arena, which they did. And hundreds of people were devoured, apparently, uh, by starving lions, simply for this guy's amusement. Uh, and there's there's many more brutal stories that we could share about Caligula, and it's a it's a bit of a cautionary tale, right, about what can happen when one person has too much power. But it's not just in ancient history, right? We see this all the time, the corrupting influence of power. And I reckon it kind of feeds into a bit of the skepticism of our age, right? where we live in a skeptical age. Where it's just really hard to trust um, because we have experienced this. We've experienced this, right? Well, uh, with all those things in mind, we we'll come back to these chapters in Matthew's gospel. We've been looking at Matthew uh, chapter eight and nine over this term, uh, taking it slowly and reading our way through, uh, and they—they they are all about the stunning authority and power of Jesus. Right? I hope you've picked that up along the way through. It really is the dominant theme of these chapters. Again and again, we see this stunning authority and power. And what we're going to see this morning, friends, as we reflect briefly on this passage that Corin read out for us, what we're going to see is stunningly, wonderfully, that in Jesus we have one who, is, who has all authority, but also at the same time, is the one that you can completely, wonderfully trust. You can put your faith in. You can come to in your need and be utterly confident that no matter what circumstances you face, he is both powerful and good. So that's what we're thinking about today. Uh, There's there's three scenes in this passage, and if you have Bibles uh, open, maybe you can see them. Uh, As I said, it'll come up on the screen as well as we look through. There's these three scenes, Uh, two daughters, uh, then two blind men, and then two responses at the end. Uh, But the first scene revolves around two daughters, and they couldn't be more different, right? One is this little girl from a respected family. The other is this destitute woman who's on the fringes of society. These two daughters could not be more different. Uh, we picked we pick things up where we left off last week. If you remember, Jesus is at his sinner party uh, in Matthew's house. He's, he, he's uh, eating with a bunch of sinners in Matthew's house. And he's been engaging with the Pharisees and then John the Baptist along the way. And then in verse 18, we read, we read this. It'll come up on the screen. Verse 18, while he was saying this, uh, that is while he's interacting with John the Baptist's disciples, if you remember that, about... Um, about wine and wineskins, while he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, my daughter has just died. Well, so, I mean, it's a pretty intense scene, right? Jesus has had a lot of intense conversation up to this point. And then this happens, this synagogue leader. It's hard to imagine a more desperate situation, right, than this guy. Uh, his daughter has just died. Matthew kind of clips things down. Other accounts of this add a bit more information in, but Matthew keeps it short. Um, he, this guy's obviously heard about Jesus, and he comes to him in his grief and his need. But do you notice his he, what he, how he relates to Jesus? He comes to Jesus in trust, in faith. Verse 18, he kneels down before Jesus and says, My daughter has just died but come and put your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. It's a bit, I think this is a significant moment in Matthew. We, we've heard of Jesus cleansing a leper, healing the sick, driving out demons, he's calmed the storm, he's restored lame people, the lame. But nothing like this has been asked of him yet, right? Uh, It's one thing to fix a broken body. It's another thing to give life to a dead body. And you can kind of imagine people around Jesus, right? Um, This extraordinary thing that this man has asked. Can he do it? Uh, the, The synagogue leader, at any rate, certainly thinks so. And what faith he has. He falls down at Jesus' feet and simply states, just come, just come, Jesus. Come and put your hand on her and she'll live. So Jesus goes with him. uh, And you can picture him walking along the way. It's an urgent scenario, right? Uh, There's a really important thing for him to go to. And along the way, another daughter interrupts him. Uh, He gets interrupted. He's walking along with a crowd around him. And this woman comes up to him. And goes and touches the edge of his cloak. Uh, We're told in verse 20, she's been subject to bleeding for 12 years. We're not quite sure of the condition. Uh, Probably a chronic kind of bleeding from her womb. uh, And which, under Jewish law, would have made her permanently, ritually unclean. So it's a little bit like, if you remember back in chapter 8, the man with leprosy. Sort of permanently unclean in that ritual sense. But just like the synagogue leader, she comes to Jesus in desperation and trust, and uh, she's heard of his authority and of his power, and she says to herself in verse 21, if if I just touch his cloak, I'll be healed. Just like the synagogue leader, just come and put your hand on her and she'll, she'll live. And so it's worth pausing at this point, isn't it? As I said, Jesus is He's on a mission to, to, to raise this daughter from the dead. Uh, he, he's rushing with his grief-stricken father. And not, not just a grief-stricken father, but a synagogue leader, no less. He's an important person. And yet, as they're walking quickly along, suddenly Jesus stops. He turns around. And, and you can imagine the people around him, right? Especially the father. If I was that father, you'd be getting pretty frustrated at this point. Uh, this interruption... But Jesus isn't frustrated. Jesus isn't frustrated. Uh, the, the Gospels are full of these subtle, these wonderful, subtle and powerful little details. I wonder if you notice in verse 22 what it says. Jesus turns and sees this woman. Jesus turns and sees her. Uh, she's the sort of person that people look away from. She's the sort of person who herself stays away from people, (laughs) fearful of their judgments. She's the sort of person no one sees. But Jesus turns and sees her, notices her. So even the most unlikely, the most forgotten and unseen people, Jesus has time for. Even at a moment like this, rushing off with the synagogue leader, He notices, and he relates to her with such tenderness and grace and mercy. She might be cast out and unseen, but he calls her, well, what does he say? Verse 22, he says, Take heart, daughter, your faith has healed you. And at that moment, uh, the woman was healed at that moment. Well, the story keeps going. If you can imagine the frustration of those around Jesus when he stops for this woman, uh, it's a bit of a uh, We're sort of guessing a little bit there, but we don't have to guess with the reaction of the people about what ha- happens next. As Jesus keeps going, Matthew tells us, uh, uh, this, he keeps going and he does get to the synagogue leader's house and he sees this crowd of people wailing, mourning this tragedy that's happened. And then he says in verse 24, this absolutely offensive and ridiculous thing in verse 24. Insensitive even, right? Go away. <laughs> Go away. Can you imagine saying that in that situation? And then he says, the girl is not dead, but asleep. The girl is not dead, but asleep. He doesn't mean that she's, she hasn't really died, she's actually just sleeping. He's making a much deeper point about, for him, even death is but sleep. But it, And it would be a ridiculous thing to say, right? It would be an offensive thing to say if it was anyone else saying it. And the crowd around this house, they know this. They know it. Uh, and they laugh at him. But then we read Jesus goes inside. And there's such understatement here, as Matthew relates it, right? That As I said, Matthew really sort of condenses down things when he talks about the stories and then he expands things a lot when he talks about Jesus' teaching. That's one of the features of Matthew's Gospel. So he just says really simply here in verse 25, he went in and took the girl by the hand and she got up. As simple as that. Jesus just goes in, takes her by the hand, lifts her up out of death. And... I guess, unsurprisingly, verse 26, news of this spread through all that region. Okay, so there's two daughters. Uh, but there's another scene. We're going to keep walking through the scene, these three scenes, before we draw some threads together at the end. The next scene is about these two blind men. It's a, again, it's a scene of desperate faith. They come to Jesus Uh, They don't just come to him. Do you notice in verse 27, they follow him, they walk after him, and as they're walking, they're calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. As this is a really interesting moment. These two blind men, they call out this to Jesus. It's the first time in Matthew's Gospel anyone has called Jesus this title, the son of David, but it's not the first time it's been used in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, maybe you remember this. We looked at this last year when we started Matthew, right back in chapter, the very first sentence, chapter 1, verse 1, should be up on the screen, hopefully. Uh, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Matthew started his whole gospel with this. When we saw back then, what Matthew's doing is he's, hi- he's highlighting how Jesus fulfills the whole entire Old Testament story. Uh, he is Israel's Messiah. He's God's great, eternal king who would fulfill even the promises to Abraham and to David. And so it's re- when you come back to ver- chapter 9 with this, these two blind men, it's a really key moment And there's a bit of irony here, right? There's two blind guys who see clearer than anyone else. They see clearer than anyone else so far. They get it. They see that Jesus is this one, the son of David, the Messiah, the king, and they come to him in faith and trust. We'll read that in verse 28. When he'd gone indoors... And maybe it's because maybe it's because of the fact that the news has spread about Jesus so far that Jesus sort of doesn't want to do this one publicly. He goes indoors, and the blind men come to him, and he asks them, "Do you believe that I am able to do this?" "Yes, Lord," they replied. And then this is so interesting, isn't it? Uh, Jesus doesn't keep his distance. He he can just heal with a word, right? But you can see what he does. He reaches out his hand and touches their eyes. He doesn't keep his distance. He, he reaches out and he says, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Now that, that little phrase, according to your faith, it just means because you have faith, because you've come to me in this humble, dependent trust, it, it doesn't mean... Depending on how strong your faith is, so uh, according to you, if you have fifty percent faith, I'll do one eye, um, and if you really, really, really believe, then I'll do two. <laughs> That's not what Jesus is saying. He's just saying because you've come to me in faith, in trust. Let it be done to you. Well, it, it goes on, and there's this—the uh, end of this scene uh, with these two blind men. It seems to sour a little bit. Did you notice that as we read through? Jesus warns them sternly in verse 30, see that no one knows about this. Uh, Jesus does this uh, quite often in the Gospels. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't want people getting the wrong idea. So these, these two blind men, they see clearly. They see that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David. But Jesus doesn't want people getting the wrong idea about what it means for him to be the Messiah, the son of David. He doesn't want people getting distracted by these miracles and not seeing the main thing that he's come to do in saving people from their sin at the cross. We've seen that all through Matthew's Gospel. So he doesn't want to get sidetracked from that mission by uh, kind of growing this reputation as a miraculous healer along the way or by misguided uh, misguided thinking about what he was really here for. So he, uh, you see this again and again in the Gospels. He urges people, he warns them, he warns these two sternly. He really doesn't want them to do this, not to tell others about these miracles. And I think there's probably a bit of irony here in verse 31. Again, um, uh, these guys, when they when they were blind, they saw who Jesus is. But now they can see with their eyes. It's like there's a there's a different blindness they have. They they can't see. What it means for Jesus to be the Messiah, and so the first thing they do is disobey Him. Uh, they go out and spread the news about Him in verse 31 all over the region. Uh, so they 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 had a faith that led them to Jesus uh, for healing, but they they didn't stay to learn obedience from Him. Um, so there's there's lots in there, but there's one more scene I want to uh, focus on at the end there. Uh, One more demonstration of Jesus' incredible authority and power. And we've seen it before and all the way through this end of this section, like these these verses we're looking at, it's the end of a section, sort of summarising things that have come before. We've seen this before, Jesus' authority over evil spiritual forces. And this time in verse 32, he meets this man who's demon-possessed and can't talk. Uh, Jesus liberates him in verse 33... His tongue is loosed. Uh, but then you get the end, the, the, the end of this section with these two different reactions, two different responses to Jesus. See what the crowds do? The people around who are watching Jesus, they see this and they are amazed. They say, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Uh, but the, the opposition to Jesus is growing, right? We've seen it through these chapters. And in verse 34, our section, this, this scene ends with the Pharisees, these religious leaders, they have the last word. So it's really interesting, isn't it? They've seen the same stuff along the way, but they have a very different reaction. Uh, and it, it, they can't deny Jesus's authority. <laughs> they can't deny his power, right? It's right the, the proof is right in front of them. But it's like they are so set against Jesus that no miracle will convince them. <laughs> Their hearts are already decided, so they kind of start grasping at straws and they make this claim that his his power to drive out demons actually comes from Satan, the prince of demons. Um, that Jesus' destroying of Satan's work is actually empowered by Satan himself. Now, it doesn't make sense, and we'll come back to it in a few chapters, actually. Jesus responds properly to this. Um, but it doesn't make sense, but... I think for these guys, the Pharisees, the alternative, faced with the reality of these miracles, the alternative that Jesus really is God's Messiah, that is actually more troubling to them and something that they cannot and will not accept. So in their hardness towards Jesus, well, they're more blind, aren't they? They're more blind than the blind men were. Well, three scenes of Jesus' authority three scenes of people coming to put their trust in him, their faith in him. What do we make of all this? I just want to draw some threads together. There's heaps in there. But let, I think in these, this chat, in this passage, we learn something really important about faith, about trust. Uh, do you notice how every person who comes to Jesus, they come from all different positions. They come from different social positions, different ages, different life experiences... So coming to Jesus is a very levelling experience, right? We've already seen that in Matthew chapter 9 with uh, his sinner party. He welcomes the outcast and the respected person just the same. Uh, They even come, this is really interesting I think, they even come with different levels of understanding about who Jesus is. So you've got these blind men, they see a really deep theological truth. About Jesus as the Son of David, uh, while the this, the bleeding woman, she would, it's hard to know exactly what's going on for her, but she seems to have, she seems to come to Jesus with more of a, a kind of superstitious or even kind of magical view of his authority. If she'll just sort of grab his magic cloak, she'll be healed. Uh, but wherever they're coming from. And whatever damage they have or muddled thinking that they might bring, the common thing about all of these people is that they come to Jesus. They come to him in their need, trusting that he can help them, trusting in him. And that's biblical faith. Faith is not a work we achieve. It's not a feeling we muster up. It's not a random quality that some people have and some people don't. I I just wish I had your faith. That's not what biblical faith is. It's not a kind of mystical thing that has power in and of itself. Uh, So 50% gets you 50%. Uh, No, faith is just empty hands held out to the one who alone is both all-powerful and all-gracious. It sees in Jesus at last, the one who has perfect authority and endless goodness. So faith turns in humility to Jesus. And Jesus has already shown us, hasn't he, in chapter 9? He's shown us our greatest need, the deepest need all of us have, our need for forgiveness of sin, for a restored relationship with God. So these healings that we have recorded for us, they show us wonderful truths about Jesus' authority and his goodness. But Jesus doesn't want us to be like like the blind men, distracted by them from seeing his great mission, the greatest miracle of forgiveness and new life that he would achieve at the cross. So faith recognizes that need within yourself. It sees in Jesus the one who is both powerful and willing, more than willing, to meet that need, and it turns to him with empty and pleading hands. And the moment that you do that, the moment you do that, you find that Jesus has turned to you and sees you and reaches out to you and calls you daughter, son, So the key thing about faith isn't actually our faith itself, but it's the one our faith is in, the one whom we trust. And that's where I want to finish, by focusing our attention, not actually on ourselves, but on him. Uh, Jesus goes on from here, and uh, there's another block of teaching in chapter 10, which we'll get to early next term. Then at the start of chapter 11, there's another really important moment where john the baptist who's in prison he sends his disciples again to jesus and they ask him this in chapter 11 they say are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else so they're asking jesus who he is is he the one that they're waiting for and jesus replies in 11 verse 4 go back and report to john what you see and hear what you hear and see the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. So That should all sound really familiar to us. That's exactly what Jesus has been intentionally doing in these last couple of chapters, what Matthew has intentionally recorded for us to see Uh, What Jesus is doing here, as he says, as he responds to John's disciples, is he's combining a couple of prophecies from the book of Isaiah, which we're also making our way through. Uh, Isaiah looked ahead to the day when God would come and renew all things. And hopefully you remember this from chapter 35, which we looked at not long ago. Isaiah looks forward to this day and says, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Or later in Isaiah chapter 61, he writes, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. So as we wrap up these couple of chapters... Why has Jesus been performing these miracles? There's many reasons, right? There's many reasons. Why has Matthew recorded them for us here? I think at the heart of it is this, to show that he was in fact the one who was to come, the one God's people were longing for, the one who would bring fulfillment to God's wonderful plan of salvation, his plan to forgive and renew and restore. So I think as we kind of wrap up this little series, the end result of these chapters is that our hearts would be lifted to see Jesus more clearly. Uh, This one who is the son of man, the son of God, the son of David, the one who has all authority, far more than Caligula ever had, And the one whose heart is for mercy, who meets the deepest need of all those who turn to him in faith. So, friends, if there's anything you go away from today, go away with this. You can trust him. You can trust him. You can trust him with your sin that he deals with at the cross. You can trust him with your fears and your doubts. You can trust him with your hopes and dreams. You can trust him through lockdowns and face masks. You can trust him through pain and sorrow and through joy and gladness. You can trust him through sickness. You can even trust him through death. Because he is the one with absolute authority and at the same time wonderful and life giving goodness. So let's pray now that God will help us to to trust and turn to him. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for these glimpses today of the authority of Jesus and of the goodness of Jesus. And, our Father, we pray that like these people we see in these accounts, that we would come to him, trusting in him. Please give us that gift of faith, Uh, perhaps for the first time, but for all of us, uh, an ongoing trust that carries us through our whole lives. Uh, Lord, we pray for those who may be anxious, uh, for those who may be sick, uh, for those who may be afraid. We pray for your grace and help to turn to Jesus and to find in him the one that we can rest completely in. Thank you that you have met our deepest need. And we pray, O God, that in coming to Jesus, you might lift us up with life and joy and peace. Thank you for the gift of forgiveness and of new life in him. And we pray this in his wonderful name. Amen.